Good morning. It is so good to be with you all this morning. Um, I want to say welcome back. If you've been away, I know people have been in various places. So welcome back. You've been away during July. And if you're here for the very first time, you are so welcome. Um, as Debbie said, over the month of July, we have been in a series called Living Tents. We've been looking at the pattern of the tabernacle that God gave to Moses in the book of Exodus. And I'm just going to give a very quick recap by way of introduction, just of where we've been over the past few weeks before we get stuck in to this morning. God has always wanted to dwell with his people. So back in Eden, in the very beginning, God walked with Adam and Eve in unbroken relationship until their sin separated them from his presence. But God didn't give up. He didn't leave it there. After he rescued his people from slavery in Egypt, he provided a new way for sinful humanity to dwell in the presence of a holy God. And that was through the tabernacle. Such was his desire to be with his people that the presence of God came down and dwelt in a tent in the middle of their camp. And God gave Moses exact instructions saying, let them make me a sanctuary that I may dwell in their midst, exactly as I show you concerning the pattern of the tabernacle and all of its furniture, so you shall make it. The details mattered and we've been studying um, the exact details of the furniture and we're going to be continuing that today. These details came from God and we have to ask why? Well, the details mattered because they were pointing towards a greater reality. Hebrews 8.5 tells us that the tabernacle was a copy and a shadow of what is in heaven. It was designed to teach the people of what living with God is like. It was teaching them that he wanted to make a way for them to dwell in his glorious presence. It was teaching them how to worship. These guys had been slaves in Egypt and he, is, he had brought them out of that and he's going, I want to teach you what it is to live with me. I want to teach you what it is to live lives of worship, to live lives of holiness. And part of how he did that was through the instructions for the tabernacle. But then later in the story, God does something so much greater than come down and dwell in a tent. He comes down and dwells among us in the person of Jesus. Jesus came to fulfill all that the tabernacle and the sacrificial system in the Old Testament represented. He came to make a way for us to enter into relationship and to dwell with a holy God. But God never wanted long term for his presence to be contained just to a tent or just to a single person. His desire from the very beginning was to fill the whole world with his presence. And when he poured out his Holy Spirit on his people at Pentecost, he made them the new dwelling place of God on earth. So 1 Corinthians 6.19 tells that, tells us that us, we individuals, our bodies are temples of the Holy Spirit. Individually, we are the dwelling place of God. And then Ephesians 2 tells us that not just us individually, but us as the church, as one body, we are being built together into a dwelling place for God. We are his plan to fill the whole world with his presence. 
And so going back full circle, why are we looking at the tabernacle? Well, in looking at the ancient pattern of the tabernacle, we are learning together how we become living tents, how we become the dwelling place of God and how we will fill this world with his presence. So today we are going to be looking at the table of bread. So we have our tabernacle maps. We've seen this a few times and I don't know about you, but I find this really helpful because sometimes I read the descriptions and they're not always in the same order in the Bible. Um, and I find it really hard to picture. So I'm really grateful for whoever made this because this is so helpful. So as you can see in our tabernacle, in the outer court, which is the first bit, um, we looked at the altar a couple of weeks ago. Trevor was telling us about that. And then last week, Bruna was telling us about the laver. So they were the two pieces of furniture in the outer court. And this morning, we are moving into the second layer of the tabernacle called the holy place. And this is the place where only the priests could go. So Bruno was teaching us last week about how the priests had to cleanse themselves in the laver to get ready to enter into the holy place. So the holy place, only the priests who had cleansed themselves could go in. And you can see from the map that in there, there were three pieces of furniture. There was the table that we're going to look at this morning. There was the lampstand and there was the altar of incense. So, the table of bread. So, we read about it in Exodus 25, 23 to 30. So, I'm just going to read that for you and it'll be up on the screen. This was God's instructions to Moses. You shall make a table of acacia wood. Two cubits shall be its length, a cubit its breadth, and a cubit and a half its height. You shall overlay it with pure gold and make a molding of gold around it. And you shall make a rim around it, a hand breadth wide, and a molding of gold around the rim. And you shall make for it four rings of gold and fasten the rings to the four corners at its four legs. Close to the frame the rings shall lie as holders for the poles to carry the table. You shall make the poles of acacia wood and overlay them with gold, and the table shall be carried with these. And you shall make its plates and dishes for incense and flagons and bowls with which to pour drink offerings. You shall make them of pure gold, and you shall set the bread of the presence on the table before me regularly." So firstly, to give you an idea of size, sometimes we read these ancient measurements and we can't picture, we've no idea what that means. So a cubit was an ancient measurement, which was based on the distance from your elbow to the tip of your middle finger, which was about 18 inches or 45 centimeters. So this table in reality wasn't that big. So it was two cubits long, one cubit wide and a cubit and a half tall. So it wasn't massive. And this is a picture, um, a representation of it to sort of help you imagine what we're talking about. It had rings on it to allow it to be carried on poles because remember, this was a tent. This was in the middle of a camp. Sometimes they had to move. So everything in the tabernacle had rings on it so that it could be put on poles and carried if they had to move. So you can see the poles on the screen. The table was made of wood and it was overlaid with pure gold. Gold is a costly metal. Any of you who have ever bought gold as presents, engagement rings or wedding rings or other presents, you will know gold is costly. And this was to set the table apart from other everyday tables. It indicated its value. This was precious. But something that is really significant is it doesn't just say gold. It says pure gold. 
the gold hadn't been mixed with other metals. So sometimes alloys are made, which is where gold or other precious metals are mixed with other metals. And sometimes that's because the other metals have properties that we want. Sometimes it's that they're cheaper. Sometimes it's that actually they're a bit more durable, they're a bit strong. And we mix the gold with that to make something that looks like gold, but actually isn't pure. God was really specific. These were to be made of pure gold. It was untainted. And this was a reminder of the purity and the holiness of this place, the holy place. And what's really interesting is that all of the furniture in the holy place, so the temple, the lampstand, the altar of incense, all of them were either made of gold or overlaid with pure gold. You may have noticed when we read it, even the poles to carry the table were overlaid with gold. All of the bowls, all of the containers, everything was gold. Can you imagine walking into that room? Can you imagine walking into a room where everything you can see is gold? Imagine your sense of awe, the sense of reverence that that would have created. And it was speaking to the Israelites, this was not a place to enter into casually. This was a place to enter in with awe and with reverence because this was a place of fellowship with a holy God. And the passage goes on to tell us the table's purpose. So first, it was to speak of the holiness and the purity of this place. But secondly, it was to hold the bread of the presence. So you may have heard in some of the series, we have described that as the table of showbread. Um, and that's how it was translated in the King James Bible. But the words used literally mean the bread of the face or the bread of the presence. And that was because this bread was set just outside or just in front of the holy of holies, which is the inner part of the tabernacle, and that's where God's presence dwelt. So literally, this bread was the bread in front of the presence of God. And we learn a bit more about this from Leviticus 24. So in Exodus, God gave the instructions for building the tabernacle, but then later in Leviticus, he gives really specific instructions for exactly how they were to use this bread and use this table. So it says this, you shall take fine flour and bake 12 loaves from it. Two tenths of an ephah, that's a unit of measurement, and I want you to remember it. Two tenths of an ephah shall be in each loaf. And you shall set them in two piles, six in each pile, on the table of pure gold before the Lord. And you shall put pure frankincense on each pile, that it may go with the bread as a memorial portion, as a food offering to the Lord." Each Sabbath day, Aaron shall arrange it before the Lord regularly. It is from the people of Israel as a covenant forever. And it shall be for Aaron and his sons, and they shall eat in a holy place, since it is for him a most holy portion out of the Lord's food offerings. So each Sabbath, the priests would eat the bread that had been on the table, and then they would replace it with fresh bread every single Sabbath. And that would then remain, they would replace it, and then it would remain on the table until the following Sabbath. So the table always held fresh bread. So we're going to be looking at what this says to us, what we can learn from this under two headings. I'm telling you that now because I don't want to see the panic on your faces when I move on to point two and you wonder how many points I have and how long this is going to take. There are only two, so you can all relax. So firstly, point one. Firstly, the table of bread speaks of God's provision. 
So bread was the basic staple of the Israelite diet. So like in Ireland, maybe tra traditionally potatoes dominated um, people's diet, perhaps like rice or pasta um, in other cultures. In Israel at that time, bread was the central component and it would have been eaten by nearly everyone at every meal every day. And you may remember that whenever Jesus was teaching his disciples to pray, he said, use the phrase, give us each day our daily bread. That was a request for provision because bread was so central to their existence that to speak of daily bread was to speak of their daily, their basic needs. So the bread on the table was perpetually there. It was replaced every week. It was perpetually fresh. So it was a constant visual reminder and a testimony to God's provision. And for the Israelites, they had experienced the provision of God in their very recent past. So after they were led out of slavery in Egypt, they found themselves in the wilderness wandering with nothing to eat. And God made bread, known as manna, appear on the ground every morning to feed them. And it says in Exodus 16, the people of Israel ate manna for 40 years until they came to a habitable land. For 40 years, God supernaturally provided bread for them. And this was the generation that received the instructions for the tabernacle. I know sometimes um, I read the Bible in different sections and I don't always get kind of where we're at in the timeline. But this is the same generation. Moses led them through the wilderness. Moses is receiving the instructions for the tabernacle. The people who collected the manna every single day are the same people receiving these instructions. They knew what provision of bread meant. They knew that God supernaturally provided for them. And this is something that I thought was really cool, possibly slightly geeky, but please bear with me. Um, the Israelites were given specific instructions for how much manna they were to collect every day per person. And then the day before the Sabbath, they were to go out and collect double that so that then they could rest on the Sabbath and they'd have enough for the two days. Well, the amount that they were to collect the day before the Sabbath was two omers. And that works out as the same as two tenths of an ephah from our passage this morning. That, the amount of manna they collected before the Sabbath every week for 40 years was the exact amount of flour that was to go into each loaf that went on the table of um, bread. We can miss that link, and particularly because of the way the unit is measured. But that would have, as soon as the Israelites receiving those instructions heard that, I mean, if you've gone out with your measurement every Friday morning for 40 years, that would be a, like something that you know. So whenever God said, that's the amount that is to go into each of the loaves, that would automatically have connected for them. This was a reminder that God provides. It was a reminder that God had been faithful in providing for their earthly needs. But it was also speaking to a much greater reality. As we said, the tabernacle was always pointing forward to something greater. Bread kept them alive on earth. God kept them alive for 40 years in the wilderness. But it pointed towards the provision he was making for their eternal life. So in John 6, Jesus said, I am the bread of life. Your fathers ate manna in the wilderness and they died. I am the living bread that came down from heaven. If anyone eats of this bread, he will live forever. And the bread that I will give for the life of the world is my flesh. 
Jesus was the new and better table of bread, the new and better manna, providing what was required for our eternal life. By the death of his body on the cross, he dealt with our sin that leads to death. He triumphed over it and he was raised to life again so that in him we too can have eternal life. And when we eat bread around a table in church now, as we did this morning, we call it communion. And when we do that, we celebrate this truth that Jesus' body was broken for us, that eternal life has been provided for us through him. From the beginning, God has wanted to dwell with his people. And through Jesus, he made a way for us to dwell with him forever. This is extravagant, abundant provision. And as we think about what it means for us to be living tents, to be the dwelling place of God on earth, this is where it starts. It starts with receiving what God has done for us. By saying yes to him and by accepting the provision that he has made for us. And if you're here this morning and you've never made that decision, you've never made the decision to receive forgiveness because he's already paid the price to accept his provision instead of trying to be acceptable to God on your own merit, then I want to say that invitation is open to you this morning. And if you want to know more about that, we would love to talk to you. Please come and speak to one of us at the end. We would love to chat with you and pray with you if you would like us to do that. And for all of us, we need to keep coming back to this. That is why we do communion together so regularly. Part of living lives of worship is continually remembering what God has done for us and giving him thanks and praise. We thank him for our physical provision, for the so many ways that he blesses us every day. But more so, we thank him for our spiritual provision because our earthly provision is temporary, but our spiritual provision is eternal. And coming back to the table of bread, something which really stood out to me as I was preparing for this. So previously in the wilderness with manna, God supernaturally provided the bread. It appeared on the ground and all they had to do for 40 years was go out and collect it. But now in the tabernacle, as he is teaching them how to live lives of worship before them, he invites them into the process. So God provides the harvest, he provides the raw ingredients, but it's the people who grind the flour, who make the dough, who bake it, and who lay it out on the table. God is inviting them to partner with him and to offer back to him what he has given to them. And I just think that is stunning. And as we think about living lives of worship, God has provided each of us with gifts, with money, with time, with resources that he is inviting us to use in worship of him and to bless others. His desire is to spread his presence throughout the whole earth. And we are the way that he has chosen to do that. Sometimes I wonder his wisdom in that, but he is God and I am not. He invites us to partner with him in what he's doing on this earth. And you know what? He could do it without us. I think that's something sometimes we forget. He could do this without us. The mission he's given us, he could do it without us. For 40 years, he provided the bread. But actually, he chooses to do it with us. He chooses to do it through us. And the primary reason for that is his desire for relationship. 
So firstly, the table of bread speaks of God's provision. And secondly, it speaks of God's desire for fellowship with us, his invitation into relationship. So God instructed that bread should be set before his presence regularly and that the priests should eat it. And it's important for us to understand that this wasn't just like offering them a snack. So us, bread for us, maybe, do you know, it's kind of, if you were offered bread, you might not be that impressed by it. You might kind of think it was a sandwich where they'd forgot to put the filling in. We probably wouldn't think that much of being invited to eat plain bread. But actually what we need to understand, not only was bread the staple in their diet, but actually the expression to eat bread was used to mean to share a meal together. So we see that in Genesis 31, Jacob and Laban shared a meal together and it said the expression used is they ate bread together. So inviting the priests to eat the bread, it was not just eating bread, this was a statement. He was inviting them to eat a meal with him. And in Israelite culture, eating together was considered hugely significant. The table was a place where family and friends gathered for fellowship with one another and it symbolized intimacy. So to eat together, to invite someone to eat with you, indicated acceptance and indicated relationship. So when God asked the priest to bring the bread to him, and then he invited the priest to come and eat it, God as host in his house, the tabernacle was his dwelling place, was inviting them to eat. This was a profound statement of his desire for relationship with people. This was radical hospitality by a holy God towards humanity. And while it was only the priests that could enter the holy place and eat the bread, their role was to be representatives of all the people of Israel. So you may have noted that when we read the passage, there were two piles of six loaves. There were 12 loaves, and that was no accident. There was one loaf for each of the 12 tribes of Israel. God was inviting all of the people of Israel into relationship. And more than that, we see that in the Old Testament, that when two people entered into a covenant together, it was often confirmed by eating a meal together. So in Genesis 26, when Isaac and Abimelech made a covenant with one another, they ate a meal together. In Genesis 31, when Jacob and Laban made a covenant with one another, they ate a meal together. And in Exodus 24, just a few chapters before our passage today, God and the Israelites entered into covenant. And then Moses and Aaron and the elders of Israel went up the mountain. God's presence was dwelling on the mountain. They went up the mountain and it says this, They beheld God and they ate and drank. So just before the instructions to the tabernacle were given, fresh in their mind, the leaders of Israel had sealed their covenant with God by eating in his presence. So God's invitation to eat a meal with him was also to serve as a regular reminder of their covenant relationship. But again, it was pointing forward to a new and a better covenant that was to come. When Jesus was eating the Last Supper with his disciples, just before he was betrayed and crucified, it says this, he took bread and when he had given thanks, he broke it and said, this is my body, which is for you. Do this in remembrance of me. And in the same way also, he took the cup after supper saying, this cup is a new covenant in my blood. Do this as often as you drink it in remembrance of me. 
a new covenant was instituted by Jesus' death. A covenant between a holy God and a sinful people made possible by the death of the only perfect human who has ever lived, God's own son. This is how much God desires relationship with us. And whoever we are, whatever we have done, we are invited to the table. This is radical hospitality of a holy God to humanity. And we see this radical hospitality played out in the life of Jesus. One of the things that got him into so much trouble with the religious leaders was the people that he chose to eat with. Notorious sinners, social outcasts, the poor. He shared meals with them all. And it's one of the biggest things he was criticized for because they knew the statement he was making by eating with them. But he also ate with the Pharisees who questioned and accused him. He even ate with Judas Iscariot the night before his death, knowing that he was about to betray him. Jesus lived a life of radical hospitality because he came to earth to demonstrate in his flesh the very heart of God. And as we come into land this morning, if we are to be living tents, if we are what God has chosen to house his solely spirit on earth and to fill the whole world with his presence, then the challenge to us, and I just want to say this is as much a challenge to me as I've been preparing for this, how are we showing this radical hospitality? I love this quote, radically ordinary hospitality shows this skeptical post-Christian world what authentic Christianity looks like radically ordinary hospitality. And I think there's two main areas for us to think about in this. So firstly, how are we showing radical hospitality in our individual lives? So who are we inviting to our tables? Literally, who are we inviting to eat dinner with us, to drink coffee with us? I just want to say, you do not have to be the best cook in the world to show hospitality. I honestly think this is a barrier for people. Get a takeaway or a cup of tea and a Kit Kat. It is just as valuable. It is not about the spread. It is about the invitation. Who are you inviting to eat with you and your family? Do you know, I remember being a student. I was at university in Dundee in Scotland. So I was away from home and from family for months at a time. And there was this family at my church. They were a couple with two young kids. And often on a Sunday, they would come to me and say, have you any plans after church? Do you want to come back for lunch with us? Honestly, we've no idea what we're having yet, but whatever we're having, you can have. And it was, it honestly meant more to me than if they'd spent ages preparing a fancy meal. I went to their house, it was chaos, it wasn't tidy, the kids were running around, she was making food as we were kind of just chatting, but I was invited into their family. And that was what was important and I felt so loved in that. So who are we inviting? And if in your current season of life, physically inviting someone to your home isn't possible, then who are you inviting out for coffee? Who are you inviting to go out for a walk and to chat? Who are you choosing to eat lunch with in work? It doesn't have to be in your own home. It's not all about inviting them in, but actually who are you inviting in by where you sit, by who you speak to? Who are you choosing to talk to at the school gate? Who are you extending the offer of fellowship to? And like Jesus, will we invite those that others won't? 
And for some of you, perhaps something sparked in you when Justine was up here last week speaking about fostering. Perhaps you could show radical hospitality to a child who's currently in the care system in need of a home. Radical hospitality may not feel that radical. It may feel really quite ordinary and everyday, hidden and insignificant. But these acts of love, of invitation, demonstrate the heart of the Father. And secondly, we want to think about how are we showing radical hospitality as a family, as a church? And I want to say firstly that I think this is something that you as a church do so well. We have a fab welcome and hospitality team that make people feel welcome on a Sunday morning. We have an incredible pantry connect cafe team who are welcoming in people from all walks of life during the week. Our kids and youth teams are making sure that our young people know that there is a place for them in this church and that this is for them too. And as individuals, I know that there are so many ways that you in church are making others feel so welcome. I know many of you have given generously and sacrificially to our new building so that we will have a place that we can invite people into, as Matt was sharing this morning. And I think as a family, we want to be known for our hospitality, don't we? And as we grow, that takes all of us. We want every single person that walks through those doors to know that they are welcome, that this place is for them, that they are invited, and that there is a seat for them at this table. When we come to do communion as a church, we want to look around that table and see such a beautiful, diverse group of people eating together. Because sadly, the church has not, not, not always been known for its radical hospitality. It has not been known, exactly as Matt said this morning, it has not been known for eating with people who are even slightly different from them. But this is the heart of the Father. And we want to increasingly think creatively of how we can engage with the community around us, with people from all walks of life. How can we create entry points for people to meet with Jesus? And I was praying, we were over um, one Friday night praying over in the new building and um, upstairs is still being constructed and all the doors were sitting, getting ready to put, and there's going to be various ministries and various multi-use spaces up there that we can use. And I was just so struck as I was praying, every single one of those ministries, as I was praying over the doors, they are doorways. They are always about people coming to meet with Jesus. And as we, as we do all of the various things we're going to do, and as we reach in our community through those ministries, we are showing them who our God is. We are showing them that he is welcoming them. None of us can do it all. There is so much to do. But each of us can do our part. And going back to our earlier point of God's provision, God has provided each of us with gifts, with time, with resources that he is inviting us to offer back to him in worship of him and to bless others. And my question this morning, what has he given you to do? What is your area of influence? Who is he inviting you to show radical hospitality to? I'd love to pray for us um, as we come to a close. And just where you are, if you would like to, feel free to just reach your hands out in front of you. And that's just a sign of saying, God, we receive the provision that you have made for us. We receive. We receive. We receive what you have done for us. 
We receive what you have given us. And we want to offer it back to you. We want to offer it back to you in worship. God, we thank you for your incredible provision. God, we are blown away that you would want to have a relationship with us. God, thank you for the incredible ways that you've provided for us, that you've blessed us individually and as a family. God, we thank you for how you're blessing us as a church so that we can bless others. And God, all that you have given to us, God, we want to offer it back to you. We want to lift it up to you in worship. And God, even right now, God, if there's something that you're asking us to do, if there's someone that you're asking us to reach out to, God, would you bring it to mind? Would you bring them to mind? God, we want to be known for our radical hospitality. God, we want to reflect your radical hospitality to us. God, would you increase our capacity? Would you help us to be faithful with what you've already given us, with the people that you've given us, so that you can trust us with more? Thank you, God.